Dr. Yi Ban Har. He's a leading math trainer and consultant. Um, he is curriculum director at Pathlight Schools, a researcher and consulting author for the Think Mathematics program, and he's written a lot of other Singapore math curriculum books as well. He's worked as a school teacher for about a decade, um, as a professor for about a decade, and he runs his own two schools. Uh, he's been the cause of higher math outcomes for so many students, and he's often called the Michael Jordan of Singapore math, which I think is quite an amazing title to have. Um, I'm happy to have him here on my podcast today. So um, thank you for being with us, Dr. Banhar. And how are you doing? And how is the COVID crisis faring on your side of the world? Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, the situation is a bit crazy around the world. Fortunately, the COVID situation in this part of the world, where I, I live, where I work, in Malaysia, in Singapore, in Thailand, the COVID situation is pretty much under control. And in all the three countries that I live and I work in, children have gone back to schools already and businesses have opened. Things are going back to normal. It's not normal as in what we used to know it, but children are back in schools and people are out and about doing whatever they're supposed to be doing. Ah, that's great. Um, that's really good to know because right now we're in that crisis where we're trying to figure out whether schools should open or whether they should remain closed. And um, although the, the curve is starting to flatten out a little bit, but it's still tricky right now. So um, I'm just going to jump right in and I'm going to ask you about the Singapore model of education um, as a whole. So, I mean, what I know of the Singapore system of education is that it is very well known and it's very respected for its high rigor. And um, uh, I want to know a little bit more about the essential elements that capture the Singapore philosophy of education. So I would love to know a little bit about that if you could. The Singapore education system is essentially a public school system. By law, children must attend six years of primary schooling in government schools, in public schools. And in secondary schools, although they can choose to do whatever they want to, practically everyone is in a public school system. So I think the Singaporean education system is characterized by the fact that it is pretty uniform for all children, regardless of whether they are from more affluent homes or from families that struggle financially or you know, other situations. Practically everyone receives more or less the same level of education that, that everyone else have access to. The Singaporean education system is characterized by the slogan, Thinking Schools, Learning Nation. Since 1997, that slogan has been introduced by the Ministry of Education. Another characteristic of the education system is that there is this pervasiveness of the use of technology. Schools are encouraged, teachers are encouraged to employ technology appropriately, not just for its own sake, but as and when it is appropriate, technology should be used. So I think thinking schools and the use of technology 
And finally, a third characteristic would be it is a values-driven education. Uh, meaning to say that while Singapore is known for high achievement, uh, there are still a lot of things we need to look at. And one of them is what we call values education. How the character of the pupils should be a premium outcome of the education system. Wow, that, that's, that's very insightful. Um, so, uh, so, so you say that there is a lot of focus on technology in, in Singapore schools. So has it, um, like right now in the distance learning, um, in the way that it's happening during COVID, it might have been easier for schools in Singapore to adjust. Was it easier for them to adjust to online learning? I think so. That is because for many years now, our schools have been practicing for this pandemic, so to speak. Not just for the pandemic, for whenever there is a need for emergency school closure, whatever that may be. And this time round, it is this COVID-19 situation. So every year, our schools will go through one week of online learning. Wow. So children may be at home or they could be in school, but they are learning online. Wonderful. So, for so example, in the earlier part of the pandemic, our schools were closed. They were not closed. The children turned up in school, but they were practicing what to do in the event that schools really close and they are not physically in school. So they were already practicing how to do online learning in a very early portion uh, of this pandemic situation. So I think um, the children, when the schools were closed, they are not now, they are all back in schools now. But when the schools were closed, uh, they were perhaps in a better situation because of the rehearsals they've been having every single year. Not very much, but one week every yeah. year. Wow, so that helps. That really helps. I mean, it's given a lot of countries a lot of perspective on how to use technology. And I guess that's given Singapore an edge. So um, to, to move on, I'd want to know that we've, I've been like doing some research on the TIMS uh, because um, recently the Pakistani government has announced that they're moving towards a single national curriculum for the country. And um, they've been looking at comparative studies of Pakistan with Singapore, Malaysia, UK, and all these countries. And the curriculum that they're trying to move towards, they want it to be aligned with the TIMS, the Trends in Mathematics and Sciences standardized tests. Now, whenever I think TIMS, I think Singapore, because it has been topping the charts in the TIMS test for, for, a, for a while now. And, and um, I even read an article about how uh, even those Singaporean children get less hours of math in instruction, they still do much better on this standardized test. So um, I'd like to know what the, what the secret ingredient is there, like what is amazing that, you know, fewer hours of instruction, but better outcomes. How do you guys manage that? Uh, of course, the measure of hours is just school hours. And we do not really know how much time children actually spend on schoolwork outside school hours. 
um, of course, the Singapore curriculum is not written aligned to teams. Uh, in fact, we do not really pay too much attention to it, mostly because teams is really merely a benchmarking study to make sure that we're in the right direction. And if there are things to be fixed, we can fix it. But we all know kind we all kind of know that teams measure mathematics achievement, how well students do in mathematics and science. And for mathematics, they measure how well students know their basics, how well students can apply the basics in problem-solving situation, including the more advanced kind of problems that is unusual or novel and requires some kind of explanation. It just so happened that the Singapore curriculum being focused on problem solving uh, dovetailed very well with the achievement tests given out in teams. But having said that, any country's curriculum that focuses on problem solving will likewise be consistent with what teams measure. Teams being an international study cannot be measuring obscure stuff. It must be measuring something really important as far as the domains are concerned, mathematics and sciences. And there is really no secret, but if you press me for an answer, a single answer, I would say that Singaporean children familiarity in solving challenging problems is the secret. All our children advanced or otherwise, even the struggling ones, are expected to have a go at rather complex, challenging problem solving. So if you want an answer, that will be it. Our students are really familiar with challenging problem solving. Even those who are not very capable at doing it, they still have a chance at attempting those kind of problems. Wonderful. So, so basically a project-based and problem-based kind of learning is probably something that works well then because, you know, it shows that it might have good outcomes. So um, one of the distinguishing features of Singapore math is the CPA approach, the concrete to pictorial to abstract approach. And um, uh, I, I always wanted to know that at some point, somebody in Singapore said that this approach to this learning theory is amazing and let's apply it to mathematics and see how that works. So is there a story there and how did it yeah. come? I'd love to know that. <laughs> yeah. So prior to the 80s, in the 60s and 70s, Singaporeans, Singaporean students were not doing very well in mathematics in particular in education in general. So in, in the early 80s, the government, the Ministry of Education decided to do something about this. And they set up an institute called the CDIS, Curriculum Development Institute of Singapore. In 1980, they decided to look at mathematics. So they were trying to change mathematics in the early years. For some reason, I think that they have the, uh, this idea that if they fix mathematics, given that it's such a fundamental subject, academically speaking, 
uh, everything else might fall in place. So they look at mathematics education and there, there was a team led by Dr. Ko Teck Hong and they, the CDIS, look at various things, various systems and Jerome Bruner's theory of representation that we today call the CPA approach, meaning children learn everything abstract initially through concrete experiences and pictorial representation. So the C is for concrete, B for pictorial, and A for abstract. That's Jerome Brunner's theory. And Dr. Cole's team decided that has to be something that is central in the mathematics learning. I mean, that is why it is a theory. So Brunner's theory uh, was adopted amongst others. And, and that has been a central component of mathematics education in Singapore since. So CDIS experimented that for 10 years in the 80s. And in 1992, the so-called new curriculum, the current one that we are using, was introduced. The problem-solving curriculum where students learn concretely there's a heavy emphasis on pictorial representation to learn the abstract, which is what mathematics is all about. That has been in place since, since then. And despite several revisions to the curriculum since 1992, in fact, next year, we're having another one, another version of the Singapore curriculum for the primary ones starting next year. Despite all the various revisions, the central framework has remained the same, which is problem solving. Wonderful. So that's a story with CPA. That's a great story, actually. And um, you mentioned that uh, there are a couple of learning theories in addition to the CPA that, that, that were used to, to create the Singapore math curriculum. Could you expand or elaborate on that a little bit? So all our teachers having been trained at a national institute, they would have learned five or six learning theories. Of course, Jerome Bruner's theories of the concrete, pictorial, abstract representation. They also learn about Zoltan Dean's theory about how the initial learning has to be somewhat exploratory, somewhat playful, not too formal. So that's the theory by Dean's. The initial learning got to be playful and then the structured learning will come afterwards and the conclusion of it all is practice. So Zoltan Dean's theory is another one of those we teach our future teachers at the National Institute of Education. Another one of course is a theory of George Paulia who promoted the centrality, the central role of problem solving, mathematical problem solving. In, in mathematics. And he gave us the word mathematical problem-solving heuristics and all Singaporean teachers are well-versed with this idea of problem-solving heuristics. And then of course, there are the various other theories like that of Vygotsky. Learning must always be a social activity. So it is often that students are working in groups before they move on to independent work. So 
So those are some essential theories our teachers learn. And a final one, I would say, would be the theory of Richard Scamp, who emphasized the importance. So I was saying, it is not as if the students learn the procedures first, and then afterwards acquire the conceptual understanding of it. Neither is it true that you learn the concepts, the meaning, and then afterwards you learn the procedure. Conceptual understanding and procedural understanding, they go in tandem. So those are some basic learning theories that our teachers are familiar with, or at least they were taught when they, they trained as a beginning teacher at the National Institute of Education. So those are the various theories that underlie mathematics teaching and learning in, in a Singaporean system. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And I think that uh, something that we miss out on in Pakistan is that our teachers don't get enough uh, training of this kind or this specialized kind of training. You see, if, if somebody gets learning theories and they understand how to apply them, that is a completely different level of understanding of the subject, right? So, um, so I'm just going to move on to my next question. Since, uh, you know, schools have closed down, uh, the access to concrete manipulatives has decreased a little bit. Um, I, I run an elementary school and we usually use base 10 blocks and 10 frames and we use all the concrete manipulatives, but because of the distance learning, we are unable to get these manipulatives to the children. So there have been a lot of virtual manipulative libraries that have become available in the process. So a question that I had was that, you know, having a virtual manipulative library, is that the, is that an okay substitute for a concrete manipulative? Does it affect the C in the CPA approach? I think under the given circumstances, it is okay. Especially if you're referring to base 10 blocks. In fact, in my experience, the virtual base 10 blocks are easier to manage than the concrete one. You know, the base 10 blocks. By the time you're done fixing 10 units to make 110 or dismantling the 10s into the ones, the time taken is so long, sometimes the children no longer remember what the main task is. <laughs> Whereas because of technology, the breaking apart of the tens into ones and the combining of the ones into ten is, is done uh, pretty efficiently. So in that particular instance, the virtual manipulative, in fact, is superior to the concrete one. Even when they are physically in class, I would sometimes still make use of the base ten blocks, especially for the older children. The importance of concrete materials is simply the physical movement. The opportunity for children to employ all their senses in order to master a mathematical idea. The base 10 blocks in this instance is used for them to understand the meaning of grouping and regrouping. How a single 10 can become 10 of something else, 10 ones. Likewise, how 10 ones can merge to become a 10. And the concrete experiences give them that sense of how one can become 10. In this case, 
the virtual manipulative is, is as good as, if not slightly superior to the concrete ones. Of course, we really want children to use concrete materials, but in the event that they do not have it, the virtual one is just as good. I'm sure in other areas, it is possible, even when the children are at home, to use concrete materials. Example, in measurements, I'm sure most homes have things like cups, things like sticks that children can use about non-standard units or even things they can use as counters, whether it is Lego blocks, whether it is pebbles they collect from the garden or seashells that they can get. So I think we can find good substitutes for children to use as concrete materials, even with school closure. And on, on top of that, we have the advantage of having uh, lots of virtual manipulative available. So I think it's a combination of both. Use what they have at home, the concrete stuff, and then whatever they cannot get easily at home, like base stand blocks, use the virtual ones. I think it's perfectly fine. All right, that makes sense. Okay, so um, I think uh, the next question I have links to this one that, um, you know, uh, in there are so many Singapore math curriculums out there, even within the approach, within the CPA approach, I found several different series of books. And um, uh, I came across the Think Mathematics curriculum that um, includes a, an added critical thinking feature where the children actually journal their thoughts and they write down um, what they're thinking, the mathematical mindset and that idea. So um, it's, a, it's a new idea here in Pakistan. So I would want to ask, why is it important that students explain their approach to solving problems? And how do you think students and teachers can build on this skill? The learning theory by Piaget, among the many theories that he had, one of them emphasized the importance of the verbal language in the acquisition of abstract ideas. And in mathematics, all ideas are abstract. Unless they have a chance to use the verbal language, maybe in our case, the English language, to talk about mathematics, to listen to someone talk about mathematics, and at some point, articulate their thoughts, make their thoughts explicit in the written words. The learning of mathematics is never going to get to the level that we so desire. So that is one reason why mathematics journal is important. It's based on the theory of Piaget, where the role of English language, in this case, is critical in the acquisition of mathematical thoughts. So they must not just write, they must be talking, they must be listening. And of course, they must also write their mathematical thoughts okay, in a verbal language. The uh, second reason is because mathematics is a language. It is. And because mathematics is a language, they need to have all the language experience. When they learn a language, whether it is Urdu or Malay 
or English or Spanish, or in our case, mathematics. They must have the various language learning experiences, speaking, listening, reading, and writing. So it is not different in mathematics. How often do our children get the four experiences I just outlined? And that may well explain why some children, why some people do not get to learn mathematics to the level that they are actually capable of. Many people become not very good at mathematics because some critical experiences might have been missing. The final reason why journaling is included is because of a theory of Dewey. John Dewey emphasized the importance of reflection in the learning process. Right. He has a, a quote that essentially says that we do not learn from our experience, we learn by reflecting on our experience. So reflection is pretty critical and I think journaling can provide that opportunity at doing reflection. Those are the three reasons why journaling has been emphasized in the series you mentioned, the series that I'm a consultant and author to, Think Mathematics. Wonderful. So, um, so I'm going to take you back a little to what you just said about how a lot of us don't get the experience of learning mathematics as a language. And um, perhaps that affects, for a lot of people, that affects their relationship with mathematics. And um, a lot of people get math anxious. And a lot of children and sometimes even a lot of adults have math anxiety. So um, what, how do you propose that we can address math anxiety in young children and how can we um, move them past that to develop a good relationship with mathematics? The main method to avoid that altogether is what happens in the classroom. You might be familiar with the work of Carol Dweck and Joe Bowler, yes, growth yes. mindset. Mathematical mindset. Yes. And it is now well known that children who think of mathematics as a collection of facts, procedures, algorithms to be memorized, they do less well. And they would have the anxiety that you, you have mentioned. But instead, if they have the belief system that mathematics is about thinking, Mathematics is about figuring things out. Then they are less likely to have the negative emotions often attached to the subject of mathematics. You see, when people think that mathematics is to be memorized, when they do not know something, they will attempt to recall. And that's a futile exercise. If you do not remember it, you do not remember it. No matter how hard you try to recall, that's true. Chances is that you're not going to remember it. But yeah. if you believe that mathematics is a subject to be figured out, then when you do not remember something, you just go ahead and figure it out. Let me give you a common example of the times table that is well known around the world. Something to be memorized by heart. So let's say a child doesn't remember 9 times 7. If a child have a belief system 
that mathematics is to be memorized, the child is lost, the so-called learned helplessness. But if the child believes that mathematics is a subject where you figure things out, the child will say, okay, I do not remember nine times seven, but I remember nine times five, that's 45, and I remember nine times two, that's 18, and nine groups of fives, and nine groups of twos, when I put the five and the twos together, I'm going to get a sevens. So nine groups of five and nine groups of two can be combined, can be added to give me nine groups of seven. So all I'm going to do is to add my 45 and my 18 to get to my final product in a short amount of time, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, half a minute, a child who does not remember nine times seven can easily get to the answer. But that depends on whether that child has the mindset that mathematics is a subject where you figure things out or a subject to be memorized. Wow. So in, in Pakistan, a lot of the times, uh, math is taught through rote memorization even now. And a lot of uh, trip, tricks and tips to uh, get to the answer quickly. <laughs> and um, there are a lot of computations and long calculations and and it's still being taught that way. And, and I think you just answered um, a question that I had is that what are the drawbacks of this kind of teaching? Because, you know, a lot of the times people say that, yeah, but okay, if you can even if you if you don't memorize it and you have a time test like you are giving your GREs or your SATs, you have a time and you have to you know complete a test in a certain time. So if you sit down to um, you know uh, kind of if you don't remember the timetable and you sit down to analyze and figure it out, it's going to take you longer. So um, so so how do you respond to that? What do you exactly say to that? And and the more you practice at figuring things out the more fluent you are at figuring things out. And that gives you an agile mind. And with the kind of agility that you have mentally, whatever tests you take, you're going to do well. Whereas if you're the kind who memorize things, I can give you an hour and you cannot recall, you're just going to waste your time. So it is really a false dichotomy that some people have in, distinct, in trying to draw a distinction between between getting answers fast and, and figuring things out. In fact, when you are so used to figuring things out, you figure things out very quickly. And because you are figuring things out regularly, that makes your mind an agile one. And this is the kind of mind that gives uh, children that added advantage, say, in a time test. Not to say that time test is the most important thing, but yeah. there's really a false dichotomy between people who do well on tests and people who can figure things out. I, I know for a fact from the children, students whom I've taught, those who can figure things out do better on time tests, on the national tests. And it is the memorizers who often do not do very well. But even outside my own experience, there have been research by Joe Bola. She has quoted this many times, studying the, the data, the data they have from Teams and PISA memorizes 
are the low achievers. It is in fact quite well established now that people who memorize, they don't do well. They don't do well on time tests anyway. For that reason, in Think Mathematics, we try to cultivate the culture of figuring things out on a daily basis. We try to prepare the textbook in such a way that figuring things out become an everyday thing. We are trying to use the textbook to influence the behaviors of the teachers in the classroom. So every lesson begins with a problem. In the book, we call that anchor task. And then students are always allowed to, expected to figure things out first before we come together as a class to discuss it. And explanation is given a premium. Students are always asked, why? Can you explain? So that's how we try to make sure the, the face of the mathematics classroom change. And that will, in turn, remove the so-called anxiety that's associated with mathematics amongst children. Wonderful. So um, that leads, to, leads me to my next question. I've seen one of your videos in which you were teaching a third grade class uh, a subtraction um, a subtraction lesson. And I saw that you were using a lot of different um, strategies like number bonds and bar modeling and a lot of different things. So looking at you teaching and then looking at, you know, the average math teacher who is in the classroom, I, I know that there is a vast difference. And, and the question that I have is that does it require a lot of training and professional development for teachers to teach the Singapore math curriculum? I was trained like every other teachers in Singapore. Our training is about 120 hours of mathematics education. So every teacher in Singapore gets the same 120 hours where we learn various things related with pedagogy of mathematics. But I suppose uh, for me, my graduate studies require me to read and my interests. I, I read broadly about mathematics research. And of course, as a professor at a university, when I was with a university, uh, I, I get to do research that require me to, to look at real students in action. And that kind of adds to my understanding of how children learning of mathematics actually is. But what is really important is really the mindset of the teacher. Teachers who believe that mathematics is figuring things out versus teachers who believe that mathematics are subjects to be memorized. I think mindset is way more an impacting factor in what actually happens than the actual training. We can never learn everything in the beginning anyway. That's true. As a teacher, we learn along the way. So beyond the initial training, I think what I learned as a teacher are the professional development that I get as a teacher. So I, I think the learning can happen. The learning will happen. Nowadays, with the pervasiveness of YouTube videos and whatnot, <laughs> any teacher who wants to learn can learn, but the mindset can be a preventive factor 
or one that provide a platform for the teacher to, to progress in their teaching methods and to help the students whom uh, they are in charge of. So I think mindset is pretty important. But you are right, professional development is pretty important as well. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. And so um, looking at Pakistan, I mean, I, I'm trying to apply everything to a Pakistani lens, but we have very few resources uh, from the perspective of how to train teachers and how to, I mean, there's, there isn't much of a thing called mathematics education for teachers in Pakistan. There aren't a lot of courses that teach that. So uh, if I ask your opinion, like for a place to start as a country with very few resources, how can Pakistan move towards creating a pipeline of qualified math teachers, given the challenges of you see, um, nowadays with technology, we can really employ it for teacher professional development. Anything informational, all we need to do is prepare a collection of very good videos by people who seem to know what they're talking about. You can invite a whole bunch of people to do different topics, teaching of whole numbers, teaching of fractions, teaching of geometry, assessment, and whatnots. Topics that you feel that teachers really need to become a better teacher. Get different people to, to do lectures on them, so to speak. And because of technology, such videos can be easily put into the hands of teachers and they can use it as a school but we can get a bunch of teachers to sit down and watch a half an hour video and then afterwards discuss among ourselves what we have just heard. And those who are more experienced among us in that group can help the rest of us. So I think with technology, professional development can be easier done. Anything that's informational, right. we can use technology. Invite people who are well-versed with that topic to do a very good lecture for half an hour, for an hour, you can cut it down into 10-minute chunks because nowadays people do not like to watch long videos. <laughs> That's true. Anything informational, we can employ technology. And then teachers in any country, if they have once-in-a-while opportunity to attend an inspirational experience a well-renowned speaker coming to the city doing a one-day course doing a three-day course if they have a chance to be with someone who can inspire them and that doesn't have to happen all the time for some people once in a lifetime of such an experience is enough it's a turning point and yet for others maybe once every five years to renew their passion in mathematics teaching um, may be needed. So to me, a framework where they have inspiration as well as information, that, that is what is really needed to get more of our teachers to do the right things in the mathematics classroom. Information via technology, and inspiration 
through a face-to-face -face kind of interaction, which I suspect is not so well done via technology. That's true. That's true. So, so what was your inspiration? How did you get into math? How, uh, how are you so passionate about it? Is there something that happened, somebody you met, some, some story about how you came into this? For me, I don't think it is a trigger. Um, it is more of my experience. I did not have a good experience learning mathematics as a child. You can understand that because that was way back in the 70s where mathematics teaching and learning was not good at all in this part of the world. In fact, unfortunately, other than in Singapore, the rest of Southeast Asia, Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, Indonesia, we, we are still not very good in helping our students in mathematics learning. When you look at the PISA average course and TEAMS average course for Southeast Asian countries, we are on average at least one year below expectation. Singapore is an outlier. And you can understand my experience as a child learning mathematics was not a good one. And I suspect that experience uh, made me when I became a teacher and I have always wanted to be a teacher. That's just my ambition as a child, which is realized. And when I became a teacher, a teacher of mathematics, I know what not to do. I know what not to do because I had bad experiences. I know not to do what my teachers were doing. I do not blame them. They do not have the same kind of training that we, we now get. They did, I think, out of what they know, what they believe mathematics teaching should be. But that did not translate into any good experience for the learners. So I think that collection of experiences uh, made me want to do the right thing uh, even more when I became a teacher. And as I said, my subsequent studies, when I did my master's and PhD, and all my research as a professor, my, my reading and listening to other colleagues around the world at conferences and whatnot, kind of gave me that reassurance, that inspiration, that whatever we have been trained to do, even though it's difficult to do, is the right thing to do. So I think my inspiration is more a collection of experiences and subsequent interaction with colleagues from around the world. Wow. Well, that's very inspirational. And I hope that all the math teachers who are listening to our talk, I hope they get inspired by that story. Um, so just to end, I would want to ask that, you know, at the moment, things are a little difficult for parents, especially who are trying to teach their children mathematics at home. Um, a lot of them have not been taught mathematics the way the schools are teaching them. For example, um, a lot of the parents don't know the Singapore methodology, but they are trying to teach their children at home using that methodology. So do you have any advice for parents on how to work on their, on their children's mathematical outcomes and how to minimize any learning losses during this time? I have actually a detailed answer to that. It is in a form of videos. I will subsequently send you the links to the videos that you can share with all parents. Those videos are produced by Matt's No Problem, 
which is the title of Thing Mathematics in England, the publishers in charge of England's version of my textbook have done up a collection of videos for parents where I explain to parents in plain language essential things that they may want to know in the event that they are helping their children learn mathematics. Or if they're not, it is something for them to understand what mathematics learning is all about, in particular what people call Singapore maths is all about. So I will share with you, uh, and you can share with the listeners, the, the various videos where I give a more detailed answer. But I also want to say that as parents, you might want to trust the professionals a little bit. And the professionals in this case are the school teachers. I agree. Everyone seems to think that they know about pedagogy. Everyone seems to think that they know how to teach just because they've gone to school. But teachers, they have specialized training and they, they are the professionals. I may not understand very much what they do. Just like I don't, because I'm not a trained doctor. When I visit a doctor, I will not argue with a doctor about my illness. Yeah. I, I have a bit of trust in that doctor. Yeah, sure, sometimes I have to go out and seek a second opinion, but generally, I do trust the doctors. Right. Having said that, that also requires schools to ensure that our teachers are professionals yeah. and they, they must know. They must know what they are doing because they are the professionals and parents do depend on them for expertise in teaching and learning of, of their children. So that's my, my, my thinking about parents in relation to, to the learning that their children might be experiencing that's a bit different. Have some trust in a school system, have some trust in the colleagues, the teachers, but also schools, we have to be responsible because trust is earned. It's not like given, isn't it? It's true. Completely agree with you there. Completely agree. So um, that kind of concludes our podcast, Dr. Yeeb. And thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. You've made math enjoyable for so many students and teachers all over the world. Your books are and will always be an integral part of our curriculum here at Ivy. In fact, I'm really interested in looking at the Think Mathematics curriculum. And I'm going to definitely try and get it imported. Um, I hope that Pakistan as a nation is able to implement the newer research around math education. And I think um, with the single national curriculum and maybe alignment with TIMS and even comparative studies with Singapore, I think they are maybe moving in, in, a, in a certain direction and it might be helpful. So um, thank you for taking out the time to talk to me today.